Now Joseph has been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And from that time, he made him an overseer of his house and over all that he had. The Lord blessed the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled to go out of the house. And as soon as he saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, She called to the men of her household and said to him, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me and cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of his house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Well, after a brief and disturbing interlude, we continue on with the life of Joseph. And uh, Joseph's life started so well, didn't it? He was born into a prestigious family, the family at the heart of God's promises for the world. He was also his father's favorite, and to top it all off, he received a prophetic dream, a dream that involved all of his brothers bowing down to him. But then one day, Joseph's life took a turn for the worse. His bitter and jealous brothers had had enough of daddy's boy, and so they decided to beat him, 
throw him in a pit and leave him for dead. Uh, but then they had a better idea. They decided that rather than leave him for dead, they were going to sell him to some foreigners and earn some money for themselves. And then in verse 1 of our passage, we see that Joseph is brought down to Egypt. Now, can you imagine what must have been going through Joseph's mind? I mean, didn't God promise to be with Jacob and his family? Didn't he promise to bless them and make them a blessing to the whole world? I mean, Joseph must have thought, where's God in all this? And I wonder if you've ever asked the same question. You know, when you get that dreaded phone call or when your parents get a divorce, when the bills keep piling up, when you lose a loved one, when you suffer another sleepless night of insomnia, when your child leaves the faith, you know, when everyone seems to be getting married and having kids, everyone except you, you know, when life just seems to throw one curveball after another, you know, sometimes we wonder, don't we, where are you, God? So if you've ever found yourself asking that question, you can probably identify with Joseph. And so let's continue following his life and to see what God has to teach us. Look again at chapter 39, verse 1. We see that once Joseph arrives in Egypt, he is sold once again, and he becomes the slave of a man named Potiphar. And notice there how Moses, the writer of Genesis, he emphasizes Joseph's low position by contrasting it with the high position of Potiphar. So Joseph is, a, is now a slave, but Potiphar, his master, is an officer of Pharaoh. He's the captain of the guard. And three times in this passage, we're told that Potiphar is an Egyptian. Now, you can, you can imagine God's people hearing this story many years later, can't you? I mean, they knew what it was like to be enslaved by powerful Egyptian masters. And so instantly, God's people would have identified themselves with Joseph. And it doesn't seem like Joseph can get any lower, does it? Yet in verse 2, we read something surprising. We read that the Lord was with Joseph. Even in his descent to the lowest human conditions, the Lord was still with Joseph. Even though he is far from the promised land, the Lord is still with Joseph. Even though he's alone, he's separated from his family, the Lord is still with Joseph. In fact, four times in this chapter, we're told that the Lord was with Joseph. In fact, the chapter is bookended by this phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. Now, this is significant because from a human perspective, God seems a long way off, doesn't he? I mean, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. He's been beaten and betrayed, taken from his home, sold into slavery, placed under the authority of a powerful enemy. I mean, it doesn't appear as though God is with Joseph at all. Yet Moses gives us a peek behind the curtain. We get to see what is taking place behind the scenes of Joseph's life. Contrary to what we might think, God is with Joseph. And because of this, in verse 2, Joseph became a successful man. He receives a promotion. Instead of working in the fields, doing backbreaking work under the Egyptian sun, he's brought into the house of his master Potiphar. 
But his success doesn't stop there. Look at verse three. God's presence with Joseph brings prosperity and blessing to Potiphar. Joseph's success is so extraordinary that even Potiphar realizes that the Lord is with him. And so in verse four, Joseph finds favor, uh, finds favor in Potiphar's sight. He becomes his personal attendant. He's then promoted once again to overseer of his house and he's put in charge of all that he had. And from this moment on, God's blessing is poured out on Potiphar. So in verse five there, we read that the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. Why, why did God bless Potiphar? I mean, after all, he's an Egyptian, he's a pagan. Well, verse five tells us, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Now, if we're careful readers of Genesis, this should, remind, this should really remind us of God's promise to Abraham back in chapter 12. God had promised to bring blessing to the nations through Abraham and his offspring. And here we see an, an initial fulfillment of that promise. And Potiphar, well, he can't believe his luck because the more responsibility he gives to Joseph, the more prosperity he enjoys. So repeatedly we're told that Potiphar left all that he had under Joseph's charge. You know, he gives, he gives Joseph his credit card, his, his Netflix password, the, the keys to his fastest camel. He, he gives Joseph everything. The, the one thing he doesn't, he doesn't have responsibility over is the food Potiphar eats. You see that right at the end of verse so in, at the beginning of verse six. And that's because the, the Egyptians seem to have had straight, strict rules when it came to food. So they didn't like foreigners preparing the food. We'll, we'll see a bit later on in Genesis, they didn't like to eat with foreigners, but, but everything else is under Joseph's authority. So just think about how crazy this is. We're, we're probably too familiar with this story, many of us, but, but Joseph is... He's gone from being a lowly field slave to Potiphar's right-hand man. It, not because of his own wisdom or intelligence or hard work, but the text makes it clear he prospers because the Lord is with him. And everything's turning out rather well, isn't it? We even find out at the end of verse six that Joseph was handsome in form an appearance. I mean, if he didn't work for Potiphar, he'd work at Abercrombie and Fitch. He seems, to, he seems to be the total package, Joseph. He has everything. However, his, his good looks turn out to be a curse because in verse seven, Potiphar's wife enters the scene and she casts her eyes on Joseph and she commands him to lie with her. Now, if this story wasn't so familiar to us, we'd expect Joseph to comply here. After all, we know that he comes from a line of men who aren't very good at saying no to sexual temptation. And Joseph has many reasons to go along with her demand. I mean, this is a powerful woman. And a slave does not say no to his master's wife. In fact, slaves were often used in this way by their superiors. This was just part of a slave's duty. Clean the dishes, take out the trash, lie with me. It doesn't matter what the command was, a slave was expected to obey. Besides, no one would ever know. I mean, Joseph has the power to make sure everyone was out of the house. I mean, the risk factor was fairly low. And come to think of it, this could even... 
This could even further his career, couldn't it? I mean, toy boy to the master's wife, that's got to open up some future doors. And don't forget Joseph. I mean, he's a teenager at this point with raging hormones. He's, he's also a slave with no romantic prospects. I mean, doesn't he deserve this? I mean, hasn't he, hasn't he earned this moment of pleasure? Doesn't God want him to be happy? I mean, the temptation must have been so strong. I wonder what you'd have done. But the tension is quickly resolved in verse 8. Joseph refused. And notice the reasons he gives for saying no. Firstly, he says, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. You know, a lesser person might have used these as reasons to yield to temptation. He's been given freedom from supervision. He's enjoyed a rapid promotion. I mean, these circumstances so often corrupt people, don't they? But Joseph sees these reasons, these as reasons to resist. Potiphar's put so much trust and confidence in him. How can he betray his master? There are even echoes of Eden here, aren't there? Joseph, he's been given authority over everything. Nothing has been kept back from him. Nothing except Potiphar's wife. She's the forbidden fruit. But unlike Adam and Eve, Joseph resists the temptation. But the main reason Joseph gives for refusing is right there at the end of verse 9. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph, he, he calls a spade a spade, doesn't he? he do, this isn't just sex to Joseph. This is great wickedness and sin. Now, we might expect Joseph to say, this is great wickedness and sin against Potiphar or against you or against me. But no, he says, this is great wickedness and sin against God. Because God, Joseph had a Godward perspective on life. He knows that sin is first and foremost against God. And this, is, this helps us to see why and how Joseph resists temptation here. It wasn't primarily because he was a model employee. It was because he feared the Lord. He had a sense of the majesty and the holiness of God. And the thought of sinning against the almighty God made Joseph tremble. And there was no amount of temporary success or pleasure that would have made it worth it. And as John Calvin said, commenting on this passage, nothing is more powerful to overcome temptation than the fear of God. And so even before God's law was given at Mount Sinai, Joseph shows that he already has God's law written on his heart. He loves God and he loves his neighbor as himself. However, if you've ever resisted temptation, you'll know that sin doesn't give up that easily, does it? In verse 10, we read that Potiphar's wife spoke to Joseph day after day. She's relentless, constant temptation. Yet Joseph remains resolved. He refuses to listen to her, the text says. He refuses to lie beside her. He even refuses to be with her. You know, this all reminds me of Proverbs chapter 7. So in Proverbs 7, there's, there's an adulteress 
who casts her eyes on a young man and she invites him to to, to come and, and take his fill of love with her. And he doesn't have to worry because her husband's away and he's not going to be back for some time. But unlike Joseph, the young man in Proverbs 7, he gives in to temptation and he doesn't know that it will cost him his life. And that chapter ends with an exhortation. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she's laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. You know, because Joseph fears the Lord, he's a man of wisdom. Not only does he say no to temptation, but he refuses to even flare with temptation. He won't even, he won't even be in its presence. Now, this would be a nice end to the story. But in verse 11, the drama escalates because Potiphar's wife is not someone who takes no for an answer. As uh, Lord Voldemort says, there is no good or evil, just power. And that is the mindset of Potiphar's wife. So Joseph goes into the house to do his work one day. And for whatever reason, all the other slaves are out in the field. And Potiphar's wife sees an opportunity so like a predator in, a, in the wild, she, she catches Joseph by, the, by his garment. And, and the phrase Moses uses here, it, it suggests that this was an aggressive act of violence. And she demands once again that Joseph lie with her. And in many ways, this moment here is the climax of the temptation. At this moment, it would have been so easy for Joseph to just give in. I mean, there's no one else around. He's weary from the daily battle. I mean, have you ever battled the same temptation day after day after day? It's exhausting. I mean, you can imagine Joseph thinking to himself, why not just get this over with? Maybe she'll just leave me alone. Or maybe the thought pops into her mind, Back, uh, pops into his mind, maybe this is what God wants. I mean, I keep saying no, I keep asking God to take this temptation away, but he hasn't. Maybe this is his will. You know, by this point, Joseph might have even been frustrated with God. How can you expect me to live like this, God? I mean, you, you brought me down here. How can you expect me to be faithful in the face of this temptation day after day? I mean, if you're not gonna help me, I just give up. You know, the human heart can find so many ways to justify sin, can't it? Maybe you found yourself giving in to sexual temptation and your inner lawyer has been working overtime. Well, everyone else is doing it. What's the big deal? Oh, it's only a bit of flirting. Oh, it's only a, a few naughty thoughts. I've never actually act out on them. It's only a few times a week. It used to be much worse. I mean, God doesn't expect perfection, you know. Well, if God gave me a spouse, I'd have someone to focus these desires on, but since he hasn't. Well, if, if my spouse was more interested in sex, maybe I wouldn't need the internet. Well, if my husband only understood me more, 
If only he took an interest in my life. If only he was more like my coworker. I mean, I don't, don't I deserve someone who appreciates me? Does, doesn't God want me to be happy? Well, I keep praying that, and I keep fighting this temptation. I keep asking the Lord to take it away, but he, but he can't expect me to say no to ever, no forever, can he? I mean, I'm only human. Yes, I know this is wrong, but I mean, this is just one tiny area of my life. I work hard. I serve at church. I give my money. I take doctrine really, really seriously. I mean, at least I'm not like so-and-so. You know, our hearts are just so, such experts at justifying sin, aren't they? Yet there's, there's never an excuse to sin against God. In the face of temptation, there's always a way out for God's people. Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10? He said, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know, God provided the way of escape for Joseph. And it was this, run for your life. Run for your life. And that's exactly what Joseph did. Look at the end of verse 12. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. You know, sometimes the, the only option we have is to literally, physically flee temptation. Get out of the house. Get out of that relationship. Get another job. Get another phone. Get rid of the internet. Get another hobby. Get another friend. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tells the church to flee sexual immorality. He was probably thinking about Joseph as he wrote those words. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, are you fleeing sexual immorality? You know, as a, as a pastor, I'm so encouraged that so many of you are. I, I hear so many stories of people who are daily fleeing sexual sin and temptation, which in this world is so hard to do because it's everywhere. But how encouraging it is that so many people in our church are doing that by God's grace. It's one of the joys of being involved in the men's reading and accountability group. Year after year, I've seen guys who meet before the sun gets up to fight sexual sin and hold one another accountable. Amazing. I also hear about women who are getting together and holding one another accountable in this area to fight sexual sin, because of course, this isn't just a guy issue, is it? Look at Potiphar's wife. So praise God that this is happening in our church. But I also suspect that there are people in this room right now who are walking down a dangerous path. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you've been flirting with temptation. Maybe you've fully embraced it. Maybe you have plans in this moment to go and do something that would dishonor the Lord. Friend, if that's you, let Joseph be an example to you. Ask yourself, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? There's a, there's a TV series called Self Made, uh, The Life of C.J. Walker. And, and it tells the story of the first female self-made millionaire. 
And in one of the episodes, we see the escalating tension between Madame CJ and her husband, Charles. You see, Charles has become jealous of his wife's success, and he feels insecure, living in a shadow. And there's this scene where Charles is flirting with another woman, and all of a sudden, he feels so important. He feels so wanted, so desirable. And as she leaves, you can see that he's tempted to follow after her. And what he doesn't know is that his dad is watching the whole thing. And then his dad, <clears throat> his dad says to him, I see you. I and that woman like she's some steak and you're starving. You're asking for trouble. And then he says to her, whatever it is you're feeling right now, trust me, regret hurts worse. And I love that last line. Whatever it is you're feeling right now, trust me, regret hurts worse. And if you're a Christian, you know that that's true. You know, you might feel bored or insecure or lonely or angry or discontent and you don't think you can feel any worse. But then sexual temptation comes along and it says, I can make you feel better. That thing you feel right now, I can make it go all, I can make it all go away. And I can make you feel good. And for a moment, it does make us feel better. But then regret comes along. And it feels worse than the boredom. It feels worse than the loneliness. It feels worse than the anger. It feels worse than the thing that drove us to sin in the first place. Because if you're a Christian, you don't want to sin. You want to trust God. You want to love God. You want to obey God. That's your deepest desire. Whatever feelings drive you to seek comfort in sexual sin, trust me, regret hurts worse. And you know that to be true, don't you? So friends, don't go asking for trouble. Let the fear of God motivate you to flee sexual immorality. So far, we've seen how the Lord is with Joseph. And because of this, Joseph has prospered. He's prospered in the workplace and he's prospered in the face of sexual temptation. And after overcoming such a great temptation, we'd expect Joseph's rise to continue. After all, wouldn't that be a nice reward for his obedience? But things take a turn for the worse in verse 13. Look at verse 13. After Joseph flees, Potiphar's wife hatches a plan. And she gathers the men of the household. And she accuses Joseph of sexual assault. But she doesn't call him Joseph. She calls him a Hebrew. See, she plays the xenophobia card and she holds up his garment as proof. Once again, Joseph's garment is used as a means of deception against him. And when Potiphar arrives home, she tells him the same story in verse 17. This time she refers to Joseph as the Hebrew servant. She's basically using an ethnic slur followed by his lowly position. She's trying to present Joseph in the lowest, most despicable light possible. Look what this foreign slave did to me. That one that you brought into this house, look what he, look what he did to me. 
And she wants everyone to know that she's the victim. You know, it, it is interesting, isn't it, how, how guilty and manipula manipulative people are often very quick to get their side of the story out there. It's exactly what she's doing. In verse 18, Potiphar is outraged, but it's difficult to know who he's angry at. The, the text is quite ambiguous. He could be angry at Joseph, but he could also be angry at his wife. You know, maybe he doesn't trust her. He probably knows a character, but he's in a bit of a bind because the whole household has heard their story. He'll look very weak if he doesn't act decisively. And either way, he throws Joseph into prison. And the fact that he throws him into prison instead of putting him to death suggests he doesn't altogether believe his wife. Either way, we can't help but be outraged at the injustice of her all. Just when things started to look up for Joseph, despite his faithfulness, he ends up in prison. I thought the Lord was with Joseph. Where is God in all of this? Well, surprisingly, verse 21 tells us, but the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph when he prospered in Potiphar's house. The Lord is still with Joseph as he's falsely accused and thrown into prison. Furthermore, <clears throat> excuse me, the Lord showed him steadfast love. His adversity is not a sign that God has forsaken him or that God doesn't love him. Nor is it a sign that God isn't at work. Look at verse 21 again. The Lord gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Joseph receives another promotion. He becomes overseer of the prison, just as he'd been overseer of Potiphar's house. He's even put in charge of the other prisoners. We read in verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it, see, made it succeed. Again, the text is so clear. This was not because of Joseph's wisdom or ingenuity or hard work. God is the one who made Joseph prosper. And the message of this chapter becomes loud and clear. God is with Joseph, both in times of prosperity and in times of adversity in times of exaltation and in times of humiliation, in times of success and in times of suffering. Just step back a second and imagine future generations of God's people here in this story. Can you see why they needed to hear this? Just as God was with Joseph, both in times of prosperity and adversity, so he was with them. God was with his people at the end of Genesis, as they prospered in the land of Goshen. But he was also with them at the beginning of the book of Exodus, as they were enslaved by Pharaoh. God was with them as they prospered under King David and King Solomon. Yet he was also with them as they suffered in exile. And the same is true for us today. God is with us in prosperity and in adversity. And this is true corporately and individually. So corporately, as a church, when things are going well, so when people are becoming Christians, when people are maturing spiritually, when lives are being changed, when the budget looks good, 
all of these things, this isn't because we are awesome. Those times of prosperity and blessing aren't a result of our wisdom or our ingenuity or our hard work. They're because the Lord is with us, showing his steadfast love. And we need to remember that and be thankful for those times. But the same is true when things aren't going so well as a church. When there's persecution and opposition and hostility from the world. When biblical values are ridiculed and vilified. When church growth seems slow. When people are leaving. When Christians are struggling to live with one another in love and unity. Even when there's a global pandemic and a divisive election and racial tension. God is with his church. His steadfast love never ceases. And like with Joseph and like with Israel, through the ups and the downs, through prosperity and adversity, God is working out his perfect plan. And this isn't only true corporately, it's true individually. So Christian, God is with you, both in your prosperity and in your adversity. So when things are going well, when you say no to temptation, when you're walking in the joy of the Lord, when you're doing well at school, when your work feels meaningful and fulfilling, when your family is flourishing and your marriage is strong, when you're surrounded by good friends, when there's enough money in the bank, when you're healthy in body and in mind, when prayers seem to be answered, God is with you, showing you his steadfast love. So don't for one minute think that you've earned those good things through your wisdom or your brilliance or your hard work. Don't become entitled or proud or ungrateful. Instead, give thanks to your heavenly father. But God isn't only with his children in the good times. So when life isn't going well, when you're finding the Christian life really difficult, when temptation is constant, when you're the victim of slander or injustice, when you're lonely and need a friend, when you're crippled by anxiety and depression, when you don't get into that college, when your future is uncertain, when you can't take another day of being a stay-at-home mum, when you lose your job, when your marriage falls apart, when your health fails, when your kids go off the rails, when prayer doesn't seem to be answered, brothers and sisters, God is still with you. He hasn't forsaken you. He hasn't removed his steadfast love. You know, God always has a reason for allowing adversity into our lives. We see that in the life of Joseph. Think about it. Joseph is never directly told that the Lord was with him. He doesn't know that being sold into slavery, being falsely accused, being unjustly imprisoned will end up being the best thing that ever happened to him. Yet through all the adversity, God was with him, showing steadfast love. Likewise, it's difficult to see that God is with us in our own lives, to believe that, that he is actually present, to be aware of his steadfast love in the midst of our adversity. And that's why we need the Bible to remind us of these things. But how can we be certain? Like, how do we know that this isn't just wishful thinking? How do we know that God really is with us and that he really loves us? You know, do you ever wonder why Joseph is in your Bibles? 
I mean, why do we get 13 chapters about this guy? What, what are we meant to learn as we look at his life? Is he, is he simply meant to be a model of how to avoid temptation? Is he simply meant to teach us that everything will work out okay in the end? Well, I don't think so. Because in, in Luke 24, we're told, we're actually told how to interpret the story of Joseph. So Jesus is he's speaking to his disciples, and he tells them that it was necessary that he should die and rise again, that he should suffer first and then be glorified. But they're confused, they don't understand. And then we read this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus tells them that the whole Old Testament was really about him. And he begins with Moses, the book of Genesis. And so we need to ask ourselves, how does the story of Joseph, Joseph point us forward to Jesus Christ? And isn't it obvious? Think about the pattern of Joseph's life. Adversity before prosperity. Humiliation leading to exaltation. Suffering before glory. Descending into the lowest pit before being raised to the highest pinnacle. I mean, who does that remind you of? I mean, imagine Jesus talking to his disciples. He's, he's working his way through the book of Genesis and then he gets to the life of Joseph. Can you imagine him saying, look, do you see how Joseph was betrayed by his own brothers? So was I. You see how they conspired to kill him? Well, they did that to me too. You see how this beloved son left his home of privilege? How he became a slave? Well, I left my father in heaven and I took on the form of a servant. You see how Joseph resisted temptation? Well, so did I, but not just once. And you see how Joseph was wrongly accused and unjustly convicted? Well, I was beaten, whipped, and crucified. And look how God was with Joseph, how he raised him from the pit, how he rescued him from prison, how he exalted them to the seat of power. Well, that's what my father's done for me. I've conquered the grave. I've defeated sin and death. And I'm about to ascend to the right hand of God. Joseph's entire life was a preview of the saving work of Jesus Christ. He's a shadow of a greater reality. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. Because what we ultimately need is not an example, but a savior. We don't just need someone to model for us how to overcome temptation, but we need someone to overcome temptation for us. We need someone to live the perfect life that we haven't lived. Someone to save us from slavery to sin and death someone who can reconcile us to God. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. So if like Potiphar's wife, you've been a slave to your sin, then the Bible, the answer the Bible has for you is not be a better person. You need to become a new person altogether. You need to receive forgiveness. You need to be reconciled to God. 
And the only way that that can happen is through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting that his death and resurrection is sufficient to save you from your sins, here's what happens. You get God. You get a relationship with your heavenly father. You get to become the recipient of his steadfast love. You get the comfort of knowing that God is with you in prosperity and adversity. I mean, don't you want that? Think about Joseph one more time. How did Joseph know that God was with him? Well, it wasn't through his circumstances. After all, his circumstances were forever changing. He could only know by looking back, by remembering the promise that God made to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. But how can we know that God is with us? Well, not through our circumstances. After all, like Joseph, our circumstances are forever changing, aren't they? We can only know by looking back. But we've got something much better than Joseph to look back on. We can look back at the cross of Jesus Christ. And we can see that he was forsaken so that we never would be. Because he died and rose again, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because of the cross, God will never leave us or forsake us. He's with us always to the end of the age in prosperity and in adversity, corporately and individually. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're with us in times of prosperity and adversity. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. Your steadfast love for us never ceases, even when we don't see it or we don't feel it. And we know this because Jesus died and rose again to save us from our sin and reconcile us to God. So help us in both the good times and the bad to run from sin and abide in you. And we ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the Lord's Supper is a powerful sign of God's presence with his people. When we come to the table in faith, we have an opportunity to remember the cross of Jesus. The bread symbolizes Jesus' body given for us. The cup symbolizes his blood, which he shed for us. And when we take the bread and the cup together in faith, we're reminded that Jesus was forsaken so that we never would be. And as we come to the table, we enjoy communion. We enjoy communion with God himself and we enjoy communion with each other. So whether we're in a season of prosperity or a season of adversity, we're reminded that Christ has not left us alone. As we gather around this table together, Jesus promises to fellowship with us. But this meal is just an appetizer. The real feast awaits us when Christ returns. And on that day, we will dwell with God as his people and we'll see the Lord Jesus face to face. Now, this meal is something that we partake of by faith. So in other words, this is a meal for Christians. So if you are not a Christian, then you shouldn't take this meal. Or if you profess to be a Christian, but you are living in unrepentant sin, then you also shouldn't take this meal. If you're wondering whether that's you, then I'd encourage you to read the instructions inside your bulletins. This is a meal for Christians who follow Jesus in baptism 
and they're a faithful part of a gospel-preaching church. So if that's you, then the Lord Jesus invites you this morning to come to his table with joy. So before we celebrate, it's our practice to celebrate the Lord's Supper with a time of reflection. So the Apostle Paul encourages us to examine ourselves before we come to the table. So we're going to do that now. We're going to have a moment for silent reflection. And then after that, I'll lead us in a corporate prayer. And then we will partake and celebrate together. So let's pray.